Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other realms of popular culture. As always, I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Happy New Year, Maria. Happy New Year, John. After years in the beer distribution business in St. Paul, Minnesota, our next guest family decided to start making beer themselves. In 2017, they converted a large space in an old canning factory into Blackstack Brewing. Blackstack quickly earned local and national acclaim for its award-winning beers, especially their hazy IPAs. Blackstack is a true family affair. Our next guest chose the brewing path, and fans of Blackstack are glad that he did. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Murphy Johnson. How you doing, man? Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, appreciate it. So Murphy has actually just arrived from the frozen north and is joining us in our tap room in Miami, which are, you know, much warmer down here. So how cold was it in uh, St. Paul up there? It's the it coldest day of the year so far. It's legitimately negative 18 degrees right oh now. My God. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's almost 100 degree swing when we got oh. And it's a perfect uh, 78 here exactly. in Miami. Yes. Uh, yeah. Slightly overcast, but you can see some blue. Yep. I think it. I think we you guys are good. Take it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I would take that over negative 18 any day. Oh, yeah. And it's, yeah it's, I don't know if it's snowing or not, but that certainly doesn't help. No. No. So we're going to jump in here. So your family was in the beer distribution business for about 20 years before opening a craft beer brewery. Tell us about All Saints Brands Incorporated. You know, what did it distribute and where? Sure. Um, so it's it hasn't actually been 20 years. It was... It was um, like four or five years in the 90s. Um, mm-hmm. We'll get into that in a second. Um, they started out bringing in a lot of, it was my father, uh, Scott Johnson, and then um, one of his best friends from growing up. Um, and they started in, started bringing a lot of brands in from Europe, um, like Triple Caramelite, uh, La Trap. Um, Ooh, okay. Yeah, like Adnams, a lot of, yeah. a lot of like old school English beers. Right. Like Belgian, like. When Belgians classes. were big. Yeah, yes. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And it's. Yeah. Um, funny is back then they were, they were obviously not really a thing, um, right. stateside. And then they were having a lot of luck with them, um, getting placements and were moving a lot of kegs. And, um, through that, they ended up meeting a lot of people who are now massive, um, in the industry. It's like, they were the first people to bring in, um, like founders, uh, Lagunitas, um, Dogfish Head before they pulled out and came back in, right. Three Floyds before they pulled out and came back in. Uh, Bells, um, that, uh, Victory. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of like huge, huge companies, but at the time they were not what they are now. Obviously. Right, right. Um, and ended up having uh, an accountant that was a little over eager to expand, like they were doing very well. Um, but he ended up obfuscating some things in uh, the books. Uh. And um, when that started to come to light, he ended up embezzling a bunch of money and fleeing the country. Oh, um, sh- okay. So every is, sorry, is. Maybe a little yeah. more information. No, that's no, no. I mean, it, this is the business channel. So yeah, yeah. So, um, ended up getting out of the business, unfortunately, and had been um, excited about or like looking for a way to get back in for a lot of years. Um, got into chemical-free water treatment for a while. Oh wow! And um, I got a call when I was living in Chicago. It was a year out of Madison, um, saving up money, right? Air quotations because right. You know, Chicago is not very Chicago is not a cheap town by <laughs> no. any means. No, it is not. Especially now when you're working three jobs and then staying out until five in the morning with right. your friends. <laughs> no, um, no. But it was. I was planning on going back to finish um, at University of Wisconsin, and then got a call from my dad, and he was like, "Hey, the the laws just changed. The, the Surly Bill is as it's often referred to that let people have a retail facing establishment in their production facility." Right. Um, so that was. The impetus initially. Right, because before, I think in the state, you could produce beer, but only sell it through distribution. Exactly. You yes. could not have a tap room. You could not have any of that stuff. That's right. And when did that pass? Was that 17 or 16? That was, no, that was uh, 2000, 2010, 2011. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. um, a lot of the first 
I don't want to say first wave. Um, the summit's been around for a really long right. time. Um, but a lot of the, and then Surly was in 2008, I want to say. Right. Um, and then like indeed, uh, a lot of the, the one like Fulton, a lot of the ones that yeah. are larger in Minnesota now came around in like that 2011 time. Right. Um, don't quote me on this. I'm <laughs> okay. That's fine. No, 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 that's fine. But it was, um, yeah. So I got a call, um, 2013 and I'd been homebrewing at, at Madison. Actually, funny little aside, the first class I ever, first time I ever brewed beer was for a botany class called Plants and Man. Really? And uh, through, actually at Wakefest, we were talking with Mike from Microphone and realized that the first time that he ever brewed beer was for the same class at Madison 10 years before me. It was, wow. <laughs> yeah, very, very small world shit. We That's were, amazing. We were, that is amazing, dude. <laughs> we, we had a beer that we had in process and the watermelon didn't work out. <laughs> 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 we got to circle back. Well, I mean, you know, there's always those first beer tales, you know. Yep. It, right, yes. <laughs> Glass carboys and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I understand sanitation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Much different in those days than it is now, obviously. Yes, absolutely. So in 2017, obviously with this this law and bill passed your family opened black stack mm-hmm. in a 20,000 square foot space in an old cannery that you used to can spam amongst yeah. amongst a host of other things how much of that 20,000 square feet was brewery versus tap room um so the tap room is just shy of 5,000 square feet wow okay um and initially we were planning on having event space in the back and that very quickly realized we, would, <laughs> we need more space rather than Devoting it to event to space, that, yeah. Because um, with like mix, the mixed culture program became more and more robust, um, and now we, we have a ton of fooders that are taking up quite a bit of room. Right. But, um, and obviously, those are a little bit longer term projects, so it's not right as in flux. Um, so we're currently trying to get a little bit more space off to the side of us and order another brew house so we can get a little more caught up with things. Like right now, we have a two vessel twenty, which is served us very well, but it doesn't have a lot of the bells and whistles that, that <laughs> you we want were. something more modernized yes absolutely. a little more <laughs> yeah. robust well i mean i can't say much you know what i mean we're no. still running on a manual system no, here so. you, you guys got the three vessel it's yeah like, even yeah. that would do a lot of good a lot of wonders right. yeah yeah so tell me a little bit about the origin of the name black stack i mean is there a black stack there at the building yes it's um the old smokestack from the the can factory uh is 149 and a half feet <laughs> wow planning on is 150 you have to start putting lights on it for aviation purposes. really <laughs> I, I didn't know that that's yes. a, that's awesome <laughs> they they cut it off right under um right now it's cement initially we were planning on getting it painted before we opened uh a little under five years ago but that has continually gotten put aside as other uh, budgetary of course new projects come on yeah we kind of like push that to the back yeah, yes so i know how that goes next summer one of my one of my roommates from college um just got into a commercial painting business with his family so he's like Give me a quote, I'll beat it by five grand. I'm like, all right, we're nice, doing nice, it. nice, <laughs> nice. Oh man. Um, so obviously that stack is what created the name. Yep. Yeah. So we spent a long time. Um, as it turns out, there's a lot of breweries in this country. Oh, nowadays. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. finding something that we could get trademarked was a long, long, long yeah. process. Um, yeah. And so we we looked at like 25 spaces um, and ended up with this one. And my dad was like, what if we, like, what about Blackstack? And it was like, we'd, we, we had submitted, a, like, several other things, and everything was like, nope, 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 nope. And that was the first thing. They were like, yeah, we can, we can do this. We're like, okay, wow. I guess it's that. And off to, <laughs> off to the races. That's awesome, man. Um, what was your guys, like, when you guys opened, what styles of beers had you planned to brew? And, like, what are you guys currently brewing now? Like, what's, what is your, what are you guys really known for? Um, say. I'd, I'd say uh, at this point, uh, mostly New England IPAs is, is the main thrust of um, at least what's getting distroed or like farther farther afield than just Minnesota. Um, and initially, initially we had uh, one New England IPA on and uh, a dark lager. Actually, one of the beers that we brought with nice. um, for you guys in the cooler. And um, a dark saison because we all know how well those. Have been <laughs> <laughs> like, and yes. um, yeah. uh, a wood beer, uh-huh. um, but it was like I'd been saying for a long time. I was like I've been seeing what Trillium and other half and Treehouse have been doing, and have been really fond of it. My mom was going out to Boston for business all the time, and she was ridiculously tolerant of me being like, "Hey, I need you to swing by the spot in Four Point for me on the way back from the airport." Of course, yeah. 
and it was when they're still doing bombers so it was like <laughs> you're, you're talking out of the space like down in the port where like it was yeah. like in a closet yeah it yeah it was like everything everything's three feet off of off of like where it needs to be right like leaning over oh and, yeah and they were she was like well i don't know how many i can fit and i was like well i weighed your suitcase before you left <laughs> exactly how many you can fit. <laughs> i know exactly how many cans fit in there are bombers yeah. yes and it was like we were, at the time me and um our original head brewer bob were brewing in our garage so we got through like we got through like 80 some batches of five gallons in like refrigerated temp controlled like batches in my parents garage and the whole time she'd been bringing these back and I'm like pouring Congress Street and all these like old fucking bangers from those guys. I'm like, this is this is what's happening right now. This right. is where it's going. And at the time in Minnesota there there was no there were literally no New no. England IPAs. No. No. Um and like before it's like before we got to market there was there was Huey and then one for Modest. Um but it was like the like one of the the third maybe New England yeah. IPA um, was local seven five five, which is one of our initial four beers. Um, and that's gotten that's more slightly like more more oats, more wheat, right? More, <laughs> as as we are wont to do these days. Um, but we spent a really long time getting our feet under us in terms of those New England IPAs. And once I was like, I'm telling you, we get, we need to start putting these in the cans. Um, so the first first can drop we ever did besides local seven five five was a beer called um, Loud Pack. And it was my parents like, what does that mean? I was like, well, it's a colloquialism for pungent marijuana in the southern <laughs> United States. And they're like, I don't know. And then I was like, I'm like, just let me like, just, let me do this. Yeah, let me do this. And um, it's you know, it's sold out and like, like very very swiftly in like a couple hours. And they're like, oh shit, like I guess you know what you're doing. And then they're like, okay, you run with this. And then ever since then, it's just been boom, 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 boom. Um, yeah, I'd say like we. We're very proud of the New England IPAs. The the logger program is is um we're fitting in as many as we can. <laughs> right, of course. That's yeah. always a thing. Yeah. yeah. Um the West Coast IPAs have been doing really well for us. Like we we absolutely love them, but for a long time they they weren't necessarily selling the best for us. Right. And it's yeah. kind of come to a spot where they're they're moving. Um the mixed culture program is, is getting right. that's what I was gonna get into. Yeah. yeah they, I, I think we have at this point, I as I understand, I think we have the biggest one in the state. That's been, awesome slowly just adding on fooders yeah i don't know uh, like i mean i don't know a lot of guys up there that are doing the mixed culture stuff i know like the guys at uh forager but i mean that's yeah. obviously like a microcosm the great oh. guys but i mean the size oh, of the production is small austin austin yeah. very good buddy yeah yeah there. yeah um and obviously they're one of if not the first collaboration we ever did like we were first first or second day we were open austin and tj just like popped up at the barn i'd never met him before and they introduced themselves and ever since then that's awesome so let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the craft beer scene in the Twin Cities. Actually, I I'll probably date myself here, but I've actually followed beer out of the Twin Cities for a long time. I mean, back in the days before I ever really met Josh and those guys, I was ordering Bender and all that stuff from Surly. <laughs> but then uh, also I would – I had a guy that ran Zaps. Zips, dude. Zips. 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 So, my home, my home, home so, um I got a fake idea. Guy named Tyler <laughs> ran Zips, and he would send me uh, Surly beer, but then he would also hook me up with 64-ounce growlers from Town Hall. Yeah. So Town Hall would do uh, barrel-aged uh, Zarjack, and then um, all their barrel-aged beers that they would no- normally never bottled, but they would always growler the stuff. So I would always have him send me all the barrel-aged stuff when they would release it, I think, like once a year. Yep. So I followed that stuff for forever. Like and then the uh, and all the, oh, Dangerous Man, and and then you guys came out, and then uh, uh, Forager. So, I mean, like, what is your idea? Like, how is that beer scene up there? Um, it's, I'm, I'm extremely proud of it. Um, for a long time, people were felt like people were saying that we were behind the curve. And um, no. I don't know if that was just because it hadn't for a long time we were we just didn't have the laws to support it right in a right. lot of ways we still don't because we're, we're still not allowed to sell four packs out the front door really yeah we can still only sell 750 milliliters 64 ounce wow so like obviously we sell a lot of new england ipas and most of most of our compatriots out of state are doing that a good amount of business out the front door well, well yeah right yeah well, i know right. It's, it's right yeah i can have i can have somebody walk in the door and buy you know, if they just want one four pack, they can grab a four pack and walk out the door. Right. So we're we're taking a thirty percent haircut on everything we sell, and we have to have logistics involved with distributing that all ourselves in state. Um, but that's still 
dramatically better than what it was before where you had to go through a distributor. Like before, you couldn't even self-distro in Minnesota, and you couldn't have a tap room. So I was like, how did anyone ever fucking get open? Like, I have no idea. It, you know what I mean? It's Well, like Town Hall, like I can understand. Right. I mean, it was just like a bar. Right. You know what I mean? 100%. And they, like, they, um, you know, they, they opened a long time ago, so it's, real estate wasn't necessarily what it is now. Like they're, they're in um, a pretty desirable spot of town, too. Like they're just right across from downtown. Right, yeah. Like, and they're right near, like, university. They're, they're in a really cool spot, and they've been there for a while. Um, right. But thankfully, it's... Uh, they're an institution, obviously, at this right, point, yeah. so it's, people know to seek them out. And it's, um, but, yeah, it's, in terms of, like, inside of the Twin Cities, it's right. absolutely beautiful. Like, yeah. I, I don't get to spend as much time out of state, um, unfortunately, because duty calls. Of course. Um, but there is a lot of stuff, cool stuff happening in the north, um, Fargo-Moorhead area, down south. Yeah, I definitely need, I need to get back up there, for sure. You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're speaking to Murphy Johnson of Blackstack Brewing. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> I mean, so you guys, I mean, this is pretty interesting. So you guys can self-distro now. Mm-hmm. But we still, yeah, still aren't allowed to sell. We're one of two states that are no, aren't allowed to sell four packs, as I understand. That's interesting. So January 11th, next week, uh, it's going before the Florida Senate to vote to see if they will allow us to start self-distroing. Oh. Well, in our county right, and right. So, adjacent county. Right. So it would okay. they're trying to push which I think is a great thing because being at somebody else's mercy to sell your beer. Oh hundred percent. You know what I mean? 100%. It's like you know, it's, it's yeah, it's crazy. I mean I, I, I know a lot of states that you can self distro. But I mean I think I think at some point you also move beyond self distro because logistically it can become a nightmare when you start pushing mass volume and you can't handle that so then yeah you use a distributor they there's necessary times for those guys but i really honestly think for guys like our size it would behoove and benefit us to be able to self-distro our own beer i think we would do a better job than being in a portfolio competing against dogfish or bells or corona or something like that you know there's no incentive to for these sales guys to push that when they can go easily sell, hey, I'm going to sell 15 uh, cases of Corona and, and make blah, blah, blah. You know, well, they, they always talk about it like share of mind. Right. It's like you, you, um, what you guys are doing, what we're doing is, in my mind, um, driving desire, driving demand through making things that people are excited about. Right. We don't need to be spending that money uh, for boots on the ground, quote unquote. Right. It's not the same. You don't need that. You don't need the same push to be selling this kind of beer. Right. And, and, and for us, it's com- competing in the fact and kind of holding us back because because they are so large and they carry so many brands, they limit how many SKUs they want from you. Which is exactly the opposite of what people are excited about. Right. So it limits us to being very selective of what we're able to push. And if we were able to self-distro... I think the business would grow and be, you know, be better for us, but we'd also be able to get to the customers all these beers, no problem. Totally. When it's it's they're worried about volume, right? And the customers worried about variety, right? It's like they're excited about right. new and shiny things and that like new experiences. As, exactly. As am I. And yeah. What they don't understand about that is like we want flagship brands, we want like limited SKUs. I'm like, yeah. well, that is literally the opposite of where this market is going, at least in my mind. And it, yeah, feels I, I hope we're headed in the right doing the right direction. So many breweries, you know, myself included, say that they are a family business. Mm-hmm. But Blackstack, I mean, truly is. I mean, when you open, your dad handled operations, your mom did the marketing, you and your siblings really young when you opened the brewery, but that didn't stop you guys from, from being involved. Your brother Cooper handled sales and your sister Quinn, environmental efficiency <laughs> and social media. Yeah. You were the only one who actually went into the brewery site. How did all that kind of shake down with the whole fam? It's it's very funny. It's all, so um, I, it's just it's funny hearing it because a lot of these roles have changed dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, or my sister's in college, so she's okay. she's still involved, but she's um, currently doing a year in Hawaii. Oh wow! Okay, my, my mom is the CEO and handles a lot of like the operational stuff. Uh, my dad's technically. Uh, president and he handles all of, like the sales side of things. Um, I still handle all the like recipe development, um, 
planning in terms of like what we're what we're going to be brewing and then the marketing side of naming beers and coming up with labels and all that stuff um and i've was taking all the pictures and stuff and have thankfully now have a you've graduated out of that yeah yes. i have somebody who's helping me and he's been doing a fucking awesome job and it's, <laughs> it's yeah i'm very bad at delegating because i'm you'd like to be involved and hands-on yeah yeah, yeah no i no, i'll join yeah. that crowd <laughs> yeah, yeah like, i'll join that crowd and i know like we have extremely talented people working for us and i do i'm just trying not to micromanage them like i know that they're intelligent individuals i know that they like they don't need me to be looking over their shoulder but it's it's sometimes a hard hard thing for me to stop myself from no i hear you in a lot of ways. so yeah so i mean really in, in essence it really is a hundred percent family run yeah. Oh, sorry. And my brother was still doing operations, but we opened up another um, brew pub in Burnsville called Ricksworth Beer Company. Right. And uh, so it's doing Detroit style pizza and wings. Um, oh, okay. When, whenever you guys come up, I'm guessing CBC, if not before, because this. I, it's like, in Minneapolis, right? This uh, the That one's in Burnsville. So it's like oh, yeah. 20, just like 50 minutes off the city. But the CBC is in, in Minneapolis. Yes, this year. Yes. Nice. In our home, nice. home turf. Finally. I'm very excited Finally. To, to host. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, is that going to be in April? Know. I think May 9th. Oh, sorry. oh I was going to say, no one's going to want to be there in April. In April, no. I don't <laughs> no. think. No, in May, though, it's fucking beautiful. It'll I'm be nice. You. It'll be nice. I know. I'm glad they've delayed it a little bit because I'm like, this This is good. This yes, is good for absolutely. So you guys are known for, obviously, your hazy IPAs, local 755, you know, your double dry hop local 755 wavy. How have your beer offerings morphed or changed since you opened, you oh. would say? Well, so like... Initially, when we opened, we thought that we would be rebrewing some of those beers, and very quickly realized like it's not doing us a lot of favors to have the same stuff. Right? You know, yeah. it's like as as a experiential brand, as as a hospitality brand, is something that we want people to be coming in and excited about trying something new, and that's a huge driver of why people are frequenting our establishment. Um, so it's at the time we thought we'd be repeating beers, and now the only beers. We brew consistently our local 755 and then um, an Italian pilsner called Fugazi. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love that name. That's uh, amazing. Um, but yeah, everything else is, is new or, you know, um, sometimes we'll bring stuff back, but it's usually, with the exception of like Loud Pack, it's usually not more than maybe once a year. Right. I, that's kind of what we've swung to, too. Like, yeah. I mean, we're seven years in now. I think the portfolio of the amount of different beers that we have brewed is, uh, I couldn't even tell you how many. It's in four, five, hundred, six hundred different beers. I didn't check last year, but the year before last, we did 122 different beers. I'm like, that's... And, I, and at this point, we've actually just now, after seven years in, just started going back and rebrewing some of those brands right. that were highlights for people and started bringing them back, but... It took that, you know, it took seven years to kind of go through all that. We're still making new beers, but I think, you know, it's just that ingenuity of constantly giving people new variety and stuff like that. But then now we've come to realize that, you know, some people do want to see some of the things back on. So, like you said, I think keeping at least a couple of the ones that people were drawn to a lot and then constantly trying to keep pushing that envelope and that ingenuity forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's for a lot of them, you know, it's there's a lot of new ideas that we want to right. bring to fruition and that right. it just even if they are in the schedule they end up getting pushed a lot of the time because they're like well fuck i'd much rather try this new thing than do something that we've already done and a lot of the times it just ends up getting to a <laughs> it's, it's hilarious because like we have like a in our schedule we just have like a park like shit that's getting bumped because we're you know we, we try to stay pretty far out but the nature of it's what tough. we're doing yeah. right you know it's, it's like tough. materials or there's something else that comes in and we're like, oh, I'm super excited. Like, we just got in a bunch of fucking phantasms. So <laughs> our whole schedule's fucked. Because well, I'm like, well, like, we gotta listen, get this. Listen, <laughs> I, we're seven years in, and for seven years, I have tried to plan two, three, four <laughs> months out, and it just, I think the best we can ever do is about a month. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's even tough. Even then, you end up switching. Yeah, like, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it constantly. Yeah. I, I try to plan three Whatever. months out, and then Whatever. John's like, we have this person coming in for a collab tomorrow. Right. <laughs> that's you just happens. learn to work around it. That's no, it. Totally. And it, but that's that's what part of the fun. Like this is yeah. why we are the size that we are, so we can be agile, so we can yeah, make those changes. Absolutely. And like, 
it doesn't get boring. <laughs> right, right. You know, if, like, if, soon, if someone's like, yeah, sorry, uh, we had the brand calendar a year out. We don't have any room for that. Uh, that's, that's when you know we've taken a wrong turn. For yeah, you. absolutely. Absolutely. So we've spoken with a few breweries. Uh, you know, who share spaces with synergistic businesses. Mm-hmm. You actually share your building with something called Can Can Wonderland. Mm-hmm. What is that? And how have they been in the building help bring more people into, into Blackstack? So it's, um, they are an artist design mini golf course that's downstairs. So it's a completely separate business, really? but it's fucking... That's dope. <laughs> it is very cool. Yeah, they... Uh, so there's like 18 holes. Um, it's, and they have a ton of old style... Um, like mostly mechanical arcade games, so like skee ball. Or oh like boy, the, the old like helicopter game where oh. you can't hit the wires and yeah, it's it is a trip. I that is, is dope. The, is the perfect way to we'll we'll go down there because like, that's dope, man. We we always go down there for shots of Fernet and, <laughs> and <funky> cactus. <laughs> but yeah, it's <laughs> it oh. is a fun spot. It's um, I will say it's one round of golf is enough because there is a lot of visual stimuli a lot of like, oh, you're like ding, 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 oh ding, gosh ding, ding. Like, yeah. okay yeah <laughs> I, i've had enough <laughs> yep yep but it is fun for well it lasts i'll say that for sure oh, um, it's, it's been great because like initially we didn't have a lot of um momentum you know like people didn't know who we were we were right. coming off of another brewery um and having them in the building was great just to have eyeballs like poking through our door all the time like oh what's going on in there and now we have you know as we've built a reputation grown, yeah i'd say it's pretty even like, even yeah that's dope man. um but it's it's been great having them like it gets pretty pretty hairy like we have that, that might that might basement. be the best uh shared space i've ever heard yeah yeah <laughs> dude it's it's crazy there's so the whole complex is like four hundred eighty thousand square feet oh my gosh we've got a coffee roaster we got teardrop style trailers there's a, a church there's a theatrical dance company there's wow. an aikido studio wow. <laughs> it's is a nonprofit. It's like College Possible. It has a hundred wow. employees. It's crazy how much stuff has gone to the building since we were us in CanCan were like the first two tenants. That's amazing, man. So did Blackstack pour at the NHL Winter Classic at Target Field on New Year's Day? No, no, dude. Oh my god, I was at Modest the day before though, and I was like, <laughs> they, the, Modest is like two blocks away from the stadium, and I was like, I am really curious to see. And they're like, it was pretty there's a lot of people in here oh my gosh negative 12 when oh. wind chill was like negative oh. 25 30 i was like you know what i'm good <laughs> tv's just fine <laughs> yeah i don't know if i brave that either well thank you very much brother it's been a pleasure to have you on thank you and, so uh, much thank for, you for joining you, us thanks murph yeah, yeah appreciate it thanks you're listening to the beer hour with jonathan wakefield conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture Since the Beer Hour debuted last year, fans on social media have been asking us to reveal our own backstories like we do with our other brewer guests. To start this new year, we're going to have some fun and start talking to a craft beer legend whose backstory you haven't heard yet. In 2014, my next guest left a successful career as a pastry chef to learn to brew beer. It didn't take her long to make her mark in a new field. She is widely respected in the craft beer industry, not only for her skills as a brewer, but for her skills as an operations manager. Those skills have been on full display during the ongoing pandemic as the brewery she runs, Jay Wakefield Brewing in Miami, Florida, made the necessary pivots to keep making and selling their award-winning beers amid the turmoil of the past two years. She is responsible for the success of Wakefest, one of the country's most popular craft beer festivals. She also co-hosts a weekly radio show about the craft beer industry. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Maria Cabre. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> th- thanks, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> In the same place we're at every day, six days yes. a week. Yeah. Yes. Oh, thank you for having me, Jonathan. Yes, this is yes. a pleasure. Yes, thank you for uh, traveling all the way here to uh, from to West Kendall. Yes. yes. Oh man. <laughs> So we're going we're gonna to dive in here. So you actually began your career as a pastry chef. Um, how old were you when you realized that you had baking skills? Uh, I don't know about uh, baking skills, but... Or infinity for baking or cooking, you know. I would always see my paternal uh, grandmother cooking in the kitchen. Um and she always involved me. Um, my brothers weren't into it 
as much as I was. And then in elementary school, we took a field trip to Johnson and Wales in North Miami. And uh, rest in peace. Yeah. No longer there. Um, but when they do the, the demo cooking is what they call it. Um, they have a big mirror and you can see what they're doing and it's at an angle so that you can see everything. And the one thing that the chef did was a, a bananas flambe. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. So ever since then, I was nine years old. I just, I wanted to cook. I wanted to be in the kitchen. But you did try your hand at college first before deciding that this was the the route to go? Yes. Sorry, Mom. Um, <laughs> I went to FIU the summer right after I graduated high school. And that didn't work out so well. I think I was there for about a year. And then I went to Dade. And then I realized I kind of just wanted to make money because I didn't like sitting in class. Uh, so then I worked full time a few different jobs until... I decided to go to pastry school. So where, where did you get your professional training from? Johnson and Wales University in North Miami. <laughs> nice. I mean, how long is that program? Uh, it's or the, what, how long was it? So it's an associate in science and it's two years. If you went to, I think, the Rhode Island campus or the um, Denver campus. Right. There's one in Denver. There's a four year bachelor in pastry and i think they delve deeper into like um chocolate show pieces and and sugar sugar pulling and all that stuff even though i did do that but it was very general Hmm. interesting so you you also have worked at a number of high profile places where did you start your career in pastry i started at the biltmore hotel um they used to have these career uh I don't know what those are called. Fairs. Fairs, yes. A career fair. Um, and they have all these hotels and restaurants, and they'd all show up at, at that hotel in Hollywood. Is that the diplomat? Uh, the diplomat, yes. So I remember really wanting to work at the Biltmore even before my whole career started because it was so iconic to me growing up, um, being born and raised here in Miami. So I remember the one door that I walked through was the door that no one was walking through. And the table, the first table when I walked in was the Biltmore. So I sat down right away and I met um, Chef Roly, who was the executive chef of the hotel. But he handled all of the the uh, the catering side. Right. Okay. Um, and then he said, I think you'd be perfect at the French restaurant Pandore under Philippe Ruiz. So I went to that interview and that was very scary because I had zero experience in pastry, but I spoke fluent French. So the minute that I started interviewing with Chef Philippe, I heard his French accent and I just started speaking in French to him. And that's what got me the job. Oh, very nice. And, and that you peeled potatoes. Yes? Yes. <laughs> One of the first things he asked me to do was to peel potatoes. And then when he was gone for an hour, he came back and he asked me, why I was so slow at peeling potatoes, but he gave me an entire sack. So that was fun. <laughs> so where did you work after the Biltmore? Um, so after the Biltmore, I moved to New York and I worked at the Modern, which is now two star Michelin. But at the time it was um, chef Gabriel Kruther and we had one star Michelin. Um, and that was a really cool experience because it's just a, a, a different type of energy working in service in New York City. And then you did, after that, what you went to? Amy's Bread. Amy's Bread. In Hell's Kitchen, which was also very cool. My first and only overnight job. Um, it was from 8 to 4, and then I'd come home with, like, warm pastries and bread. and Yeah, it was pretty cool. And then was it after that point that you moved back to Miami? Yes. Moved back to Miami. Um, first worked at the Fountain Blue when I moved back. Um, and I did pastry there. And that was um, that was really awesome, too. Um, we got to do a lot of cakes and different things for celebrities. Um, and it's always interesting to get their input because you never know what they're going to ask for. Of course. Um, and then after that, I worked for Misha's, Misha's Cupcakes. And then I went back to the Fountain Blue. But at that point, you had left pastry. Yes. 
and became a concierge. Yeah, concierge, yes. yes. Uh, I had no experience in front of the house either, but somehow I keep faking it till I make it. <laughs> um, it it's, it's, it's a good thing to speak different languages. So that's essentially what got me the job. And if you're personable enough, and I like knowing things about my city, so that's another thing. As a concierge, you need to know your city of front and back. Yes. So yeah. I did very well at that job. And then I met you. I mean, clearly you loved, I mean, and still love baking. What was the driver behind switching careers, especially when you were doing so well in the kitchen? Um, the kitchen is very time consuming. And when you try to have a family, and at that time I had my daughter and I wanted to spend a lot more time with her. Um, so I wanted a day job versus, you know, at the time we didn't have a Zach the Baker. We didn't have a Cindy Lou's cookies um, yeah, we had Misha's cupcakes, but I, I kind of wanted more. I wanted to expand what I was doing. Um, so I s- wanted to stay in service and that's why I went to the fountain blue to, to do front of the house. Cause even though the, the times were, you know, I, I usually worked the PM shift. So three to 11, um, I could spend the morning with my daughter, you know, taking her to school, picking her up, et cetera, et cetera, until, I had to go into work. So what made you want to switch from being a concierge to brewing? So I missed production. Um, That was my biggest driver. I wanted to be creating. Um, I I, am not one of these people that can just sit behind a desk and behind a computer. Um, I need more than that. I need to be able to feel as though I'm creating something that people will either taste or experience and know that I was a part of that. When did we meet? I mean, I don't remember the first time at this point. <laughs> uh, first time was actually in front of this building that we're in right now, which is the brewery. Um, but they, it was sometime in 2014. They hadn't started. I think they had started construction. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Construction had started. It was one of the days I was going into work. And since it was on the way, I said I would stop by. And then, yeah, obviously, because we met because of a mutual friend. Correct. And then, obviously, when when did you actually first start working here? Was that end of 14 or beginning of 15? December 1st, 2014. Yeah, you have better memory than I do. <laughs> I mean, it's those are my dates, you know. Right, I don't, right, I don't know that you need to yep. remember them. But, yeah, so I just um, I just hit seven years working here. Long time. Yes, long very time. long time. <laughs> what would you say the similarity for like you? What are the similarities between baking and brewing? I mean, they're more similar than cooking and brewing. Um, baking is very exact. It's not something that you can go back and fix if you forget. Sprinkle a few things in. Baking powder or sugar or salt or if right. you mess up. And this has happened to a lot of people where they... Use salt instead of sugar. Right. You know, you can't go back and fix that. Um, and then there's chemical reactions that happen when you use certain things in baking. Um, but it's it's a very precise science, you know. You can, you can tweak certain things here and there the same way that you can in brewing. But at the end of the day, you need to follow a recipe to a T in order to execute it the way that that recipe was written for that specific um, item. I agree. I mean, obviously, I never had the background in baking, um, something I dabble in not very well. Oh, uh, <laughs> let's tell our listeners he makes a better banana bread than I do. <laughs> he really does. Um, but it is very exact. I mean, you know, I do have a hand in cooking and I would agree that you can't, you know, go back in late stages of the brew and, and throw in hops or throw in, you know, necessary uh, water chemicals you know salts that are needed i mean once it's past that point you're past that point right you know trying to salvage something is not always easily done at all right you have certain windows that you you're within that you can maybe adjust yeah but for the most part i mean it's it's very exact yeah it's all science yeah i mean i I think i don't think a lot of people realize that but it is very very much Mm science-based um what would you say what has running a brewery 
taught you about yourself that maybe you didn't know before? Uh, managing people is very difficult. <laughs> Leading is very difficult if you're not like if you don't have this innate um, leadership quality and something that that I've had to learn and I'm still learning. Um, but I think managing people is the hardest thing, you know, and then stepping into a role where you're running a business is a lot of, of stress and responsibility. Um, it's very rewarding, but I do feel since I've been here since day one, that this is very much mine as it is, you know, yours and right, you're vested. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the biggest um, takeaway that I've had um, where you try and balance kind of relationships with your employees along with being able to keep it professional and, and, and really, you know, it is a business at the end of the day, you know, if I have to fire someone, it's not personal right? and it may hurt me, but I still have to get it done. So to me, the, the biggest thing has been just learning how to, manage people and different personalities and and how it can all kind of work cohesively i think we've talked about this since you are a day one and we've done this now for seven years it it's hard finding those people nowadays that care as much about doing their job to the best of their ability and caring about this place as much as we do. I mean, yeah, obviously I, I don't count because names on the building, whatever. But still finding people that want to work here and care about it just as much as everybody else, more than just pouring a beer or throwing a grain sack in the mill. Right. I think it's becoming harder and harder to find those kind of people. And and I'm uh, there is a, a place for those that just this is a job and they do right. their job. They do it well. They execute it. Um, but outside of, of their requirements, their job requirements, they don't step out of that. Right. It's hard to find someone that goes above and beyond. Right. On that day to day that really cares that um, that, you know, that you can trust them with the job and they're going to get it done no matter what. Um, we luckily do have an individual that works here that I felt comfortable enough in production where I don't have to be there just babysitting. Babysitting. Right. Um, So I'm very, very thankful and appreciative um, for that type of individual and that, that person specifically. You're listening to the beer hour with Jonathan Wakefield. And we're speaking to Maria Cabre from Jay Wakefield brewing in Miami. Here's a, uh, a real business uh, channel One Thirty Two question. What lessons did you learn about crisis management as an operations manager during the pandemic? <laughs> pivot, pivot, pivot. Uh, I think that was the biggest word of 2020 uh, for us, at least. Yeah. Um, trying to manage uh, a business that we were running that was driven mostly by distribution. And that's how we made a lot of our um, money and and how to pay just the everyday things, you know, um, where we were filling kegs versus now we have to switch everything to cans and then finding different outlets to pour that into um, and just figuring out how to run a business that way yeah, when right. we had been running it one way for six years. And, and I think we had become, as, as a lot of breweries are, very reliant on the tap room. Correct. And it was a massive source of income. And as soon as you take that away and you have to change your business model to a hundred percent distribution, but in the form of package, it's a shock because you go, I mean, it's all a margins game. I mean, if you really get down to business, I mean, best margins are in-house sold off of your taps. Mm-hmm. As soon as you go to distro, kegs obviously lessen the margin. And your least amount of margin in business is package. package. Yeah. And when you go from always having, making, you know, money a certain way to then having to shift to something that gives you the least amount of gross margin you can possibly make. Yeah. And the only way to kind of make up for that is with volume when you don't really have a space to produce a ton of volume. Right. 
And then the other thing that we were kind of dealing with was uh, a mobile canner. Right. And we were at the mercy of the right. dates they had available, right. uh, the materials, uh, you know, so we weren't able to turn out beer as quickly as we could. We were at the, the, mercy, the mercy of somebody else. Yeah. yeah. So then we obviously invested in a canning line, which has been huge. But at the same time, it, it comes with its own set of problems. So it's constantly like trying to find solutions versus just basking in, in the issue and in the in the problem. Um, so, again, pivot. That's the word of 2020. I would I would agree 100%. So mu- much is made of the fact that you are a successful woman in a traditionally male-dominated industry. Does that feel like an honor or a burden to you? Um, well, because I can say you were one of the first. And it's not because of me. I brought you on because I saw the drive that you had to want to be in this workspace and in in this industry and do something different such as brewing and it was really you i mean you started as a keg washer i had another guy here who didn't really fit the bill for what we needed and you stepped in with your own determination your own drive and sought out your own path to learn new things push yourself you know, become something better and bigger. And that wasn't me. That was you. Did I help teach you all that? Yeah. But it was your own determination to get those things done. I mean, as far as I know, you were the first female brewer, head brewer in South Florida that kind of marqueed all that. And it definitely, I mean, you were, I mean, super male dominated back then. I mean, what was it like? I mean, as far as I know, I mean, I don't, I don't think you had any issues. Uh, well, I'll answer the first question. Uh, I don't think it's a burden at all because um, I, I don't see it as a male-female thing. And, and I know that that's kind of controversial in and of itself. Right. You've never seen it as that. You see it as a job. Right. It doesn't matter whether you're man or woman. I've always said that there have been guys that have gone up on that brew house that can't turn that mash paddle. <laughs> so it's really yes. not a male-female thing. It's just a matter of what individual can do it. Right. right. Um, is it cool that I... That I am or that I got to a level in a male dominated industry that sometimes other males don't and, and maybe females don't have the opportunity. Yeah, that's awesome. I, but I can kind of give thanks to my mom who is very much uh, a, a strong individual and really takes no shit. Sorry for cursing mom. Um, but uh, I, I've never really had an issue. And if I have had an issue, I've always, uh, you, you've, I've either squashed it, it right, right at there. the moment, right. like taking myself out of the situation or I've taken it on and I've spoken out. Right. Not everyone's going to be outspoken, but I've had to kind of become more outspoken in that sense because no one's going to speak for me. Right. You know? Um, well, no one will express what you're feeling as well as you can yourself. Right, right, right. Right. But I have not had an issue. If anything, it's been because of you and people like JC and people like Andrew that have pushed me and believed in me and said, you can do whatever you want in this industry. Right. So, you know, right. I, I, I can thank those individuals. Right. There, there are no barriers. I've never seen it as man or woman. I mean... Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you couldn't do the job. Right. You know, you proved that a long time ago. And, and like you said, we've had plenty of guys coming here that can't get the job done. Right. And you did a better job than they did. And I don't think it was because you were a woman. It's just you had more drive and wanted it more than they did as an individual. Yeah. I'm just very persistent when I want something. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your path to become a professional brewer? Um, I think it's important that you, um, are aware of the realities of, of being in a production type, whether it's a brewer or a chef or a pastry chef, whatever. Um, because it's not like what you see in pictures and what you would see on food network or cooking channel or whatever publication you're looking at. Um, that's the first thing. And then second, which I've, I've told a few people this advice is 
if you want to be in a certain industry, you got to go kind of be a part of it. So if you're a regular at a brewery, you start talking to the bartenders, you ask them, hey, if you need any help in the back, if you're canning, if you're bottling, if you're whatever you need, I will help labeling. Who cares? Um, Because that sort of determination and that sort of um, just wanting to help is really big to people like us. Right. Um, So we always really appreciate when either our regulars or our fans or just people that are interested and they want to help out and we can use them um, that they help out. Now you're going to have other businesses, other breweries that may tell you, Hey, it's a liability for you to be back here. But I mean, you might as well just apply to all the jobs, right? Who knows? I've hired people. We've hired people that have zero experience. You hired me based on zero experience. That was, yeah. In the beginning. Yeah. I mean, in those days, starting from scratch, I mean, I had, well, we didn't have a lot to choose from back then. There was zero in Miami. First off, there was zero in Miami and I had, garnered my knowledge obviously not in miami but i brought it back here and you know i started hiring people that had no experience but then taught everybody and then you taught people after that and so on and so forth i mean that's kind of how it carries on but i think we're at a point now as a business that it's easier to find somebody that has experience not always saying that that's the better option because that comes with its own stigmas right but instead of taking someone that has zero knowledge and bringing them from the ground up, it, that's a lot of time invested right. and a lot of money invested yeah. to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely a different course. So I will finish this with a question that uh, Bill Belichick did not answer. What is your new year's resolution? <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading a lot of these like, Oh, you know, you shouldn't feel pressure just cause it's a, this new year, but like there's a Chinese new year and there's a, this new year. Oh boy. I'm, I'm trying to be, um, more take it day to day versus like worry about things to come. Obviously wake fest is coming guys. So I will be thinking about that future event, but um, I'm trying to to stay more in the moment and enjoy what we have because obviously, as we've seen in the last two years, uh, nothing is nothing is certain, no. nothing is guaranteed. No. Um, no. So it's important to make sure that you you love on those that you love and and that you cherish what you have. Absolutely. With those people. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for those awesome questions, Rocco. (laughs) We'll we'll see you you next week, guys. Yes, That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Murphy Johnson and Maria Cabre, my producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, James Maresca. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy New Year, and remember people, the thirst is real.